Malachi, the last prophet recorded in the Old Testament, Malachi 3, 1 through 5a. Most Reformed commentators are of the opinion that Malachi probably proclaimed God's word during the time of Nehemiah. And so that is after the Jews had become back from their 70 years of captivity in Babylon. But a time in which they had fallen again into, into disobedience to the Lord. Chapter 3, 1 through 5. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment." We turn to chapter 4, and there read the first three verses. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And finally, we turn to the New Testament, to the gospel according to Luke chapter 1, and there we read the verses 11 through 17. Luke 1, 11 through 17. This is part of God's revelation concerning the foretelling of birth, the birth of John the Baptist. And we are right in that passage when the angel appears to Zechariah. And it says in verse 11 and following, And there appeared to him, that is to Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. 
And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So far, the reading of God's word, let us respond with the singing of hymn 18. The text for the proclamation of the word this morning, the last verses of Malachi 4. Malachi 4, the verses 4 through to the end of the chapter, verse 6. These words, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Moreheb, Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and the awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In response to the proclamation of the gospel, let us sing from hymn 15, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Comfort, comfort now my people, speak of peace, so says our God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, today is the second Sunday of Advent. Advent on the church's calendar. We wait and we prepare for the celebration of our Savior's birth in only a short period of time, the Lord willing. Advent, that is a word that is derived from the Latin Adventus, and it means and it indicates a coming, a coming. And yet, it does not only indicate the first coming, the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but it certainly also indicates the second coming, when the Lord Jesus Christ will come back on the clouds of heaven to judge the living and the dead. And now our text closes the Old Testament. We may say it was God's last word, his final appeal to his people and whoever would hear. And then a period of some 400 years, that's a long time, 400 years would take place before God would open the mouth of his angel Gabriel to tell Zechariah the good news as we read in Luke 1 verse 19. The good news concerning a son who would be born to him and his wife even in their older age. A son who would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth as it says in Luke 1 15. That God might make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Malachi. His name means my messenger, God's messenger. And he proclaimed God's word to Israel, likely during those momentous days when Nehemiah had rebuked God's people because their worship had once again degenerated into merely going through the motions, something that we call formalism. Days when God's law and the prophets had once again been neglected. 
In chapters 1 and 2 of his book, Malachi first described the sin and the misery into which Israel had fallen. And then in chapter 3 and 4, he points both to the judgment that would come on those who refused to listen, as well as the blessings which the Lord God reserved for those whose hearts were right with the Lord. And when he comes to the close of his prophecy, he returns to a theme that in a way sums up God's exhortation and his appeal to his people throughout the centuries. Hear, O people, and live in covenant faithfulness, for the day of the Lord will come. That is the message, that is the theme of the preaching this morning. For the Lord, in the first place, maintains the foundation for covenant life. In the second place, he effects the renewal of that covenant life by means of his precious word. And in the third place, he will not allow anyone to defy the Lord of life, also this covenant life. Live in covenant faithfulness, for the day of the Lord will come. The Lord maintains the foundation for covenant life. He effects the renewal of that life through the preaching of the gospel, and he will not allow anyone to defy the Lord of life. First, then, that he maintains the foundation for this covenant life. The Lord our God builds his people, his church, says Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. And that sure foundation is his word, his revelation. It involves certainly his holy law. His law, which comprises not just the Ten Commandments, although we usually think of the law of God only in terms of those ten words, the Ten Commandments, but when you read Galatians 5 verse 14, for instance, it's quite clear that that law of God comprises the whole of his word. The whole of God's word is law for us. It's his law that we might live it to the praise of his name. But now the Jews had returned from Babylon and from exile. They had been allowed to rebuild the temple but they faced a number of discouraging situations. Situations that seem to have contributed to what we might call a general spiritual decline, a despondency and a dejection which had given rise to all kinds of ungodly, unfaithful behavior. And after their return, we need to remember that their captivity of their country remained They were still only a small province of that vast Persian empire. The bright and the glorious future of which the prophets Haggai and Zagari had spoken, well, they had not been, that had not been realized. It didn't even appear to be on the horizon. The coming of God to his temple, even with glory and with majesty, as King David had sung about it, for instance, in Psalm 68, that too seems to have been put on hold. And so we find Malachi deploring the fact that the people doubted God's covenant love. He does so right from the beginning in chapter 1, verse 2, for instance. They no longer trusted God's justice. 
they'd begun to lose hope as we can read in more than one verse. The people and their leaders, even the priests among them, had become faithless. Chapter 1, verse 6, all the way to chapter 2, verse 10 and 16. Though the Lord was disappointed and angry with his people, yet they had not been completely destroyed because of their unfaithfulness. And yet, as Malachi says in chapter 3, the verses 6 to 12, they would only be saved and protected in the way of their repentance, in the way of their returning to faith and to reformation. And it was because God said in chapter 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. No, he does not change. He remains faithful, maintains his covenant faithfulness. He remembered his remnant chosen by grace, returned again to his people with his word, with his law. We hear him doing so in verse 4 of our text chapter where we read, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. The Lord left his people without doubt that the law that he was speaking about was God's own law. Moses was his only servant, was his servant. Did God graciously write down commandments on two tablets of stone? And did he give Moses all kinds of instructions for the tabernacle service? We could say instructions for Christian living. He gave them on the mountain at Horeb. He laid them on the hearts of his people that they might be blessed in not forsaking his precepts. And that they might realize as well as Malachi had told them in chapter 3 that they would be to blame when they turned away from those very decrees of the Lord and did not keep them. They only were to blame. And that's why here they are now called to remember God's law. And that was not just a plug in their ear to stimulate their powers of recall, some casual form of, oh yeah, I remember that. No, it was more than that. But that they might delight in God's word again. For it's one thing to hear the word of God, even Sunday after Sunday like we all do, but it's another thing to delight in the law of the Lord and to truly live to the praise of his holy name that those precepts might be bound on their hearts, for that law of God had been designed by the Lord as the foundation for their life. They could not expect a blessing on their life unless they build on that foundation. The law of God, you know it, is so rich in promises and in demands. It tells about the grace of God who said, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery and oppression and idolatry in Egypt. I provided for you a structure for godly, for Christian living, a structure in which the Lord God would direct the hearts of his people upwards and forwards in expectation of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The Messiah, while they acknowledged that they could not of themselves live in sincerity of faith and obedience, not even Moses, God's special servant, could do that. 
Even he, in his older age, in his human nature, was a slave to sin. And brothers and sisters, this call to remember the law lies in very real sense at the heart of the whole of Malachi's book. For time and again he urges, he exhorts God's people to live their lives of God's covenant people in faith, in truth, in holiness. They hadn't done so. They had not done so. Instead, they brought blemished sacrifices on God's altar. Were they supposed to take, indeed, a pure lamb of the flock? Ah, if it had a crooked leg or perhaps a blotch on its face, that was good enough for the Lord. They kept the best for themselves. They brought blemished sacrifices. The priests, by their teaching, had caused many to stumble, says Malachi in chapter 2, verse 8. By their marriages with whoever, with their heathen neighbors, Judah had desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves. Desecrated, made it a common place, even though it was the sanctuary of the Lord. They robbed the Lord by refusing to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And yet God, that's the amazing thing about our God, had kept for himself a remnant who nevertheless feared the Lord. They had joined in a covenant, as it were. For we read there that he had drawn up a scroll of remembrance, even in God's presence. They had a congregational meeting, and there in that congregational meeting, they decided to rededicate themselves to the Lord. And they even wrote it down in a scroll, a kind of confession of faith. And God had listened, and he had heard them, and he had promised that they would remain his treasured possession. And yet even then, he had reminded them of the great and terrible day of his judgment, which was coming. A day that would be terrible for all the evildoers whose hearts were not turned back to the Lord. Though for those who yet revered the name of the Lord, he, the Lord God, who is called the son of righteousness in chapter 4, verse 2, would rise. The son of righteousness would yet rise. They would be victorious and would trample down the wicked. And yet the blessings which would be theirs would only be gained in the way of covenant faithfulness. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws that I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. And with those words, the Lord wanted to bind his faithfulness on their hearts so that it would not just go in their ears, but would go into their hearts that they might expect the coming of their Savior in truth and right, in faith and in love, love for him. Love for his word, love for each other, love for their precious children. For God desired his people to be a bridal congregation. A congregation that that lives according to the precepts, the decrees, and the vows that bind her to her divine bridegroom, Yahweh, the Lord God. Were they to be faithful? Would they remember the law? That would be an indication that they had returned to the Lord. Only in that way 
would the light of that sun of righteousness shine on them. Only in this way would they be blessed by the day spring from on high. If not, they would only continue to live in a very, very thick fog, thicker than the fog that you met on the road today, the fog of unbelief and of disobedience. Isaiah Malachi, Malachi's fellow prophet, he had spoken of God's word as well some 300 years prior to Malachi's days. And he had said in chapter 8, verse 20 of his prophecy, to the law, get back to the law, to the testimony. It had been a warning even then to those who had consulted the mediums and the spirits, not much different from from the ones who today also, you can go downtown Hamilton and get your palm read and maybe somebody will have a crystal ball or you can open your newspaper and there will be indeed also, you know, different kinds of supposed revelations concerning the future. They consulted the mediums and the spirits, but they did not inquire of the Lord. They did not spend time in prayer. And they had been warned that if they did not obey God's word, then famine and darkness and distress would come upon them. And yet, in the same breath, Isaiah had gone on to speak of that great light which would be seen, and that child who would be born, who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Congregation, that still is God's universal appeal, even in this sorrowful, this wicked world. Remember the law of my servant Moses. It's still a rule not only to discover our sins, as it does also this morning, but a rule for thankful, for Christian living, living in thankfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, who rescues us from our sins and sets us free so that we might live again and build our homes, our lives, our schools, our families on the foundation of his covenant word. And that we might not follow the lisping lies of the devil, nor the slogans of this sinful world, which says, let it all hang out. Join us. Forget your small ambitions. What, are you crazy? What, Sunday to church, twice even? (laughs) The whole world beckons for you. Come to the casino. Know how to live there. That's what the world says. It was then as well, an appeal which has a forward-looking emphasis. For Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, and he did die, and he was buried, but he rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and today he sits at the right hand of God in power, in majesty, in which he rules all of creation, and in which he comes back to judge the living and the dead. That will be a great day of the Lord. He will usher in that day. It will be a day of marvelous blessings for those who are faithful, yet a day of terror and of darkness for those who do not believe. Therefore, that call must continue to come from our pulpits and from our mouths. Remember the law. Yes, 
and remember the prophets. Hear and heed God's word and love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. For the whole law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, even as the Lord God effects the renewal of his life by his gracious word. Let us hear something about that in the second place. says Malachi in verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. And so the prophet Malachi did not only instruct God's people concerning the foundation on which they were to build their life, but he addressed as well the whole of God's building program. We may call it that. The whole of God's building program for his people, his congregation, which was to live in the expectation of the coming Savior. And so God had him address his people concerning the coming of the prophet Elijah. Now then, speaking of a return of this prophet Elijah must have raised a few eyebrows, don't you think, among the inhabitants of Judah. What? Would, would Elijah, who, who was taken away from this earth by that fiery chariot, pulled by those fiery horses, you can read about it in, in the second book of Kings, right at the beginning of that book, uh, would he come back? Would he come back to resume the role as prophet? And now it is so, according to the historians, that the Jewish people, and in particular their leaders, did indeed expect Elijah. Many of them did expect Elijah to do come back bodily. He evidently was expected to make an end to the family feuds that were rampant among them. The historians tell us that indeed that was a going concern for Christians in those days, the family problems, the feuds that they had, which set brother against brother and sister against sister. And yet it isn't so that the problem that Malachi addressed here is family feuds, quarrels between family members, nor does Malachi's prophecy concern a literal bodily return of the prophet Elijah. Oh, it might have stimulated the hearts of Malachi's hearers to think of Elijah's returning on another chariot pulled by another team of fiery heavenly horses, but that's not what Malachi had in mind. No, for Elijah, in God's word, is really a symbol. We could also say a sign or an example an example of that prophecy which was heard in the ranks of God's people throughout the centuries. When the angel Gabriel announced the birth of John the Baptist to his father, Zechariah, he said in Luke 1.17, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And what is called the Benedictus, Zachariah's song of praise, which we have already sung in part, at the birth of his son, then Zachariah says, And you, my son, will be called a prophet of the Most High, and you will go on before the Lord 
to prepare the way for him. There you hear about John the Baptist's task, and indeed in what he had to tell God's people, God's word. And so it's clear that Malachi was speaking about John the Baptist, and that this was in line with what Malachi had said in chapter 3 about that messenger who would come and prepare the way for the Lord. John the Baptist would be the first to take up that thread of prophecy and at the same time be the last prophet before Christ, our chief prophet and teacher. That is, the, the last prophet before Jesus would be born. Why that mention of Elijah? Well, surely it had to do with the fact that while Moses was instrumental in passing on the foundation for covenant living in God's gift of the law, Elijah was responsible for confirming God's law. That's God's people, his bride, might live in the renewal of life every day. Elijah has been called a pioneer, a pathfinder of the messianic age. He's the one whose powerful preaching <coughs> excuse me, came to God's people. And John the Baptist, what about him? Well, he, with similar, similar powerful, some would even say shocking words, called for the repentance of God's people in his day, that he might turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And to use the words of the Holy Spirit in Luke, 17, in Luke 1, the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. For the problem in Malachi's day was not so much family feuds. Oh, they can be nasty even in our day and age. And no doubt there would have been a number of them then as well. But there was a greater problem. There was a large-scale separation between, on the one hand, God-fearing Israelites, and on the other hand, those who had become unbelievers. A new generation had been born. And one that criticized the older ones for their refusal to go along with the times. Children who called their, their parents, uh, old fuddly ones, living in the, in the dark ages. Sometimes you hear that shamefully also as well today. That's what those children did. The times that they were involved with involved mixed courtships and mixed marriages and an obsession with magic and the occult as well as bringing shameful offerings to the Lord. And this generation appeared to desire a compromise between a Christian lifestyle and that which was practiced by an unbelieving society. It involved scant attention to the true doctrine of salvation and instead embraced whatever was new and whatever was different and whatever was interesting. Today you have the same. Eastern religions in which people dabble in the occult infiltrate the communion of God's people in more than one place. In the process, the fathers who still feared the Lord had become estranged from young Israel, which did not seek the Lord. No, it wasn't just a matter of one tradition confronted with a somewhat different one, a situation which might well have been overcome with some willingness on both parties to compromise. No, far from that, 
It was a matter of the heart, a matter of faith versus unbelief. A call to reformation in the face of deformation. That even as God's people to to repair for the coming of their Savior, they might be the people of whom the psalmist spoke. I think of Psalm 110. Troops willing on the day of battle, willing to fight the good fight of the faith, though it may cost you your life in holy array, together with the older generation, in the service of King Jesus, who in majesty and glory preserves the bloom of Christian youth, even to use the words of Psalm 110, verse 3, as the womb of the dawn gives birth each morning to the dew. God would have his young warriors flock to him and his word. In so doing, they would have the hearts united to the hearts of their fathers and their grandfathers. Those fathers whose hearts beat for the rescue and the salvation of their children. (coughs) Those hearts turned to their children, the ranks of all of God's people, and then together they would walk again that road of salvation, hand in hand, heart to heart. Serving the Lord and not walking a road that would lead to misery and condemnation. That would be the blessing of a renewal of life. A reformation of living by the word of God. That word proclaimed by John the Baptist who called on God's people to be bride again. John the Baptist publicly denied that he was Elijah Though we confirm that he was the one who, like Elijah, was a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, for his feet. Did he have the last word, John the Baptist? No. Christ Jesus, the thongs of whose sandals John the Baptist said he was unworthy to untie. He has the last word yesterday and today and tomorrow. He who is the word made flesh came and he died, but he lives. Is that not also what we celebrate next week Sunday at the table of the Lord? That he gave his life so that we might live. Live to the praise of his name in all faithfulness. That we might give him all glory and honor and praise. That daily dying unto sin we might live for him. And that we might receive from him all that we need for body and soul. That parents who have that brilliant yet difficult opportunity and responsibility to train their children that indeed they may tank up, as it were, at the well of the Lord God at his word and receive from him the necessary patience and the wisdom and the love, yes, also the discipline needed to live a life and to pass that on also to their children. And then one day he will return to take us home In the meantime, may it be that our lifestyle may be characterized by a sincere desire to be together with all of God's people when he returns to do that, to take us home, to stand in the love of Christ, who will see to it that he completes 
the church building project that he busies himself with today as he did in the days of Malachi and then also in the days of John the Baptist. Even to the close of the age and in the process, and I come to the third point, he will not allow anyone to defy him, him who is the Lord of life. Moses and Elijah, I think the children, number of you anyways, will remember that they appeared with the Lord, Jesus, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Read about that in Matthew 17. They spoke with the Lord Jesus about his departure, that is, about his death on Calvary's cross, by which he delivered his people from their sins. And our Savior listened, and he obeyed the will of his Father. And one of the others present that time, the Apostle John, saw Jesus Christ once again after he had been glorified. Remember, he saw Christ as we read in Revelations 1, verse 17, when John was on that island of Patmos, where even the emperor as well as the rulers of the Jews thought, now he can't say anything anymore. He's way out there. We've put him on an island. And there, the Lord God in heaven shows John something indeed of the glory of Jesus Christ and reveals to him all those marvelous things that we read about in the book of Revelation about the return of Jesus. He saw Christ in Revelation 1 in great glory and power. And you read there that he, that is Jesus, was dressed in a robe that reached down to his feet. And he had a golden sash around his chest. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. I think most of us have been to Niagara Falls, and the closer you get to it, you hear the sound. It's a mighty sound of rushing waters. All of these are images of power, of majesty, and as well as a threat for those who do not believe. And that exalted Christ completes his church-building program. Oh, in doing so, he doesn't hide the fact that his faithful people will have to undergo extreme trials, even persecutions for the sake of his name, as many of our brothers and sisters in the Lord in places that we may not even know of are suffering persecutions, boycotts, death even at the hands of God's enemies. And yet the end will come with the great and glorious freedom of the children of God who will live on a new earth, a renewed earth. This earth, this earth, renewed, cleansed from all its unrighteousness, all its disease, its terrorism, and its bloodshed. <coughs> and yet, as someone has written, blessing and curse are often right beside each other. Very close together, you find them in the Bible. And so it is in our text. And so it will be at the end of days. The earth will undergo a grand sanctification, a renewal even by means of purging with fire, as Peter speaks about in his second letter. And at the same time, the Lord warns about that curse with which he will strike the land, meaning even the habitation of his people, Israel. For he will not allow 
anyone, anyone, any family, any nation, any church community, least of all his own, to defy him and to turn their backs on him. Was that not a danger in the days of Moses as well as in Elijah's days and in the days when God's own son was ready to make his appearance? Does not John, the apostle John, say right in the beginning of his book that he, the Christ, came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. His own, his covenant people did not receive him. And to know of that danger, to have the warning imprinted on our hearts, well, we might consider that a downer, a squelcher of joy, but no, It's not a downer. In reality, when the Lord warns us, that's a blessing. It's a blessing if your father, your mother, your grandparents warn you about a road that you shouldn't travel, a way that cannot be blessed because it's a way that runs counter to the Lord. It's a blessing. For it is the Lord who in his grace and mercy warns his people all through the scriptures. He did so when Christ Jesus was on earth and after he left to go back home. He does so in the very last words of the very last book of the Bible. That we might realize our calling to be faithful unto death. And that we might live in faithfulness before him. Malachi speaks of God's curse or what is known as his ban in which in the past he put the nations who inhabited Canaan under his curse. And now, brothers and sisters, you and I are headed for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Apostle Paul closes off his letter to the church at Corinth, he does so, yes, in passing on God's blessing his benedictus, his benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The same blessings that we will receive in a moment before we go home. And the Apostle John does the same in the book of Revelation. And yet, just prior to his closing words, just prior to that blessing in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Think of that. A curse be on him. And yet he does not say, O Lord, suspend your judgment, your return, please wait. No, he says, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, for the end will not come without God's judgment on the wicked. And even when the Holy Spirit closes his revelation of the Old Testament, he does not dispense with his warning, for the hearts of the fathers must be and must stay turned to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Not not our wisdom, for we don't have any of our own but the wisdom of Christ, the wisdom of knowing him who is our wisdom and our righteousness, our holiness and our redemption, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.31. And that we, as Paul went on to say, might be the righteousness of Christ. 
What a beautiful thing. If you are a true believer and somebody should ask you, who are you? You may say in all humility, you and I may say in all humility, I am the righteousness of Christ. Yeah, then if that person doesn't know, you'd have some explaining to do. But it's a beautiful statement. And all that in preparation for the coming of the Lord. Right until the day when the Lord rolls the clouds back. May it then be, brothers and sisters, that we continue to embrace the promise and heed his warning. May it be that many will yet be stopped if the track that they are on is the one in which they are headed for disaster. May it be that the church of Christ may covet his blessing in the way of faithfully adhering to the truth. Remembering, as John was also allowed to say, that all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of life everlasting. Praise God from whom such blessings flow. Amen.